The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. These praise songs to remind myself again of your goodness to me in Christ and to be with my brothers and sisters who are uh, on pilgrimage with me as together, Lord, we journey closer and closer to our destined rest. We thank you for the promise, as the scripture says, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. We thank you that our salvation is yet to come, its future, as well as present and past. And we thank you, O Lord, for the delight of thinking of the treasure that awaits us in heaven, the treasure of face-to-face fellowship with you. For you are, you are our treasure. On you we have set our hope. You are our life. And Lord, I pray that now, by the power of your word, you would drive out all idols, all pretenders to the throne, that you and your glory and your kingdom would once again take its rightful place at the center of our lives that we would be delighted in you and refreshed in your word. Lord, I pray again as I did this morning for fathers. I thank you, O Lord, for the way that you have ordained the family and that the family is set up in a way to prepare us for salvation and to enable us, O Lord, to be fruitful in this world. I pray, Father, for fathers here, that they would be faithful in their very high and challenging calling to make disciples, not of all nations in this case, but disciples of their own children, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded them, and teaching not just by word, but by their example, by their actions. Once again, Father, I pray that fathers would be faithful in their private devotional lives, and faithful, O Lord, in their love for their wives and in their relationship with them. Faithful also, Lord, in their... Uh, discipleship of their children and gathering children around the family altar if they still have children at home. Father, I pray that the church would do everything it can to enable and strengthen fathers for this priestly role. And Father, we thank you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of you. We thank you that we are fully equipped for this journey that we're on. Father, we thank you also that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that as we've been reading through the plagues, in Exodus, we are in awe, <clears throat> in awe of your great power, your power over nature, your power over human hearts, your power, in this case, over life and death itself. And I pray, Lord, that the lessons of the tenth and the most terrible plague, the plague on the firstborn, would come through in our hearts tonight as we begin to consider it. Father, I pray that you'd open my mouth and give me speech, that you would guard and protect me from my natural proclivity toward error and toward falseness, O oh Lord, that I would instead be freed and just be able to speak the truth in love. Father, I pray that you'd open all of our hearts, that our hearts would be as upturned soil, ready for the seed of the word, ready to bear good fruit for you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you would, open in your Bibles to Exodus 11, continuing in our uh, look at Exodus, and we come to the prediction of the plague on the firstborn. And as I mentioned in my prayer, this is the most dreadful of all the ten plagues. 
Perhaps in some ways for us who might value human life too highly perhaps, even make an idol of it, it'd be difficult for us to understand why God would ever take the lives of all the firstborn of Egypt. And it's interesting how everything in its ethical arrangement has its proper place in God's word. We live in a uh, culture that destroys infants without the leave, the permission of God through abortion. And we are rightly horrified by this, for the Bible says you shall not murder. But yet God has the right over our lives, for in him we live and move and have our being. And it says in Psalm 103, when he takes away their breath, they die and return to the dust. God has power over life and death. And it shouldn't trouble us because he's the one that created it. And so as we come to the plague of the firstborn, we kind of have to check our original thoughts at the door and just allow the scriptures to teach and instruct us of God's great power that we might understand his way of thinking and that we might be filled with his spirit. Listen now as we read in Exodus 11. We're going to be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 10. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for gold and silver. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who is at her handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Now first in verse 1 we get the plague, the tenth plague announced to Moses and then to Pharaoh. Exodus 11 is to be read in conjunction with the end of chapter 10, the uh, confrontation that they had over the plague of darkness. And I don't really know if darkness still prevails in Egypt, but you realize that it was in reference to this plague that Pharaoh invited Moses and Aaron to come back at the end of chapter 10. And then Pharaoh attempts to dicker with God through Moses to kind of negotiate with him as he had tried before, asking who's going to go and see if he can somehow change the terms. And this is not going to be allowed. And so chapter 11 follows right on, and sometimes I think the chapter divisions can be a hindrance to understanding the context. But it's at the end, at the very end of the plague, the ninth plague, in which Pharaoh desires the plague of darkness to be lifted, uh, that this prediction of the plague of the firstborn comes. 
And so in chapter 11, he's still standing before Pharaoh at this point. You can see that in verse 8 where he says, All these officials of yours will come to me bowing down before me, saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that I will leave. And then it says, Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. So this is all at the end of chapter 10, the end of that ninth plague, the interaction there. It's interesting that Moses still has that temper. And I think it's, it's uh, if you do a character study on Moses, I think this is probably one of his character flaws through his whole life. I think when he lost his temper with the, with the Israelites, uh, he struck the rock rather than spoke to it and for this very reason was not permitted to enter into the promised land. It could be out of anger, out of rage that he struck down the, the Egyptian earlier and committed murder. And so this is a regular problem with Moses. Realize that it says in the book of James that man should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because man's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. But God's anger does. God's wrath is perfect. And the time had come for wrath and judgment of the most grievous kind on the Egyptians. And so God had, I, the way I read it, already announced the tenth plague to Moses. He'd already told them what was going to happen ahead of time. And so I think the NIV does a good job in verse 9 in putting it in the past uh, perfect tense. The Lord had said to Moses, had said to him before this interaction, he had told him ahead of time, the Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. And then verse 10 it says, Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. So before Moses even went with Aaron to end the ninth plague, he knew that the tenth plague would not only be necessary, but it would be successful. The tenth plague would be required. The ninth plague wouldn't do it. God would harden Pharaoh's heart so that the full array of his plagues would be done, as we've spoken about many times before. And so in verse 1, the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. And this is a very strong expression in the original, in the Hebrew. He's going to, he's going to drive you out like cattle. He's had it with you. He wants to be rid of you. And he's going to expel you or spew you out from the land. It's very interesting then that shortly thereafter he changes his mind and chases them with his chariots. Don't you think that's odd? You know, for, for him to drive them out of the land, you think, good riddance, we'll never see them again. And then a few hours later he's changing his mind and chasing them. This is the hand of the Lord on his heart because it said the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would pursue them. It makes no human sense. For him to be so angry and so filled with a revulsion, really, over the Hebrews and say, enough is enough, he expels them from the land. And then a few hours later, changes his mind and says, get my chariot ready, we're going after them. But that's another story for another evening. All I'm saying is that he is ready, he's going to be ready to expel them. This very thing had been predicted in Exodus 6.1. The Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. And because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. This is before any of the plagues have been done. A whole thing arranged in the mind of God, really before time began, but certainly before any one of those plagues started. God knew everything that would happen. And so in verse 2, we have also, in, a, in an amazing way, the command to plunder the Egyptians. Take from them articles of, of silver and gold. In verse 2, tell the people that men and women alike are to ask 
the, their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Now, the King James Version gives us a bit of a problem here. Because it says, speak now in the ears of the people and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. Now, borrow implies what? When you think of borrowing, you think that they're going to come back and give them in return. Well, nothing like that was planned. And isn't it obvious? I mean, if you'd been through all of these plagues, isn't it obvious where we're heading? The, the slaves are leaving and they're not coming back. And so I think it really is just a translation problem here. Now, if you had been one of those Egyptian neighbors and they came and asked to borrow some jewels, wouldn't you basically write them off? I mean, they're gone. I, I just think the whole thing's a translation issue and I think the NIV does a better job. You're to go and request or ask of your neighbors these articles of silver and gold. Now, this very thing, namely the plundering of the Egyptians, had been predicted four centuries earlier. Isn't that amazing? The detailed knowledge of God. And it's the details that just cause me to worship when it comes to prophetic scripture. In the prediction that God had given to Abraham in Genesis 15, it says, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. A little detail there at the end. They're going to have lots of stuff with them. What an odd thing for God to put in the prediction to Abram. But so he does. And this is the fulfillment. Also at the burning bush in Exodus 3.22, every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Now there's a lot of different ways to think about this, but I think one good way is to think of the concept that Jesus gave us in Matthew 10.10, a worker is worth his keep. Now these folks had been slaving for hundreds of years. And I think it's a really a small thing to get a, get a wage for that kind of labor. Now, generations had come and gone and got nothing for their work. But the fact of the matter is, as it says in Exodus 1.14, the Egyptians made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And then in Exodus 2.11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to see where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. So let me ask you, what is two or maybe three centuries or perhaps even four centuries of slave labor worth? A few articles of silver and gold and some clothing is a small price to pay for all the labor that the Jewish slaves had done. But I think it's also interesting that there's a battle going on in the heavenly realms as well, isn't there? A battle between the Lord and the gods of Egypt. And God has won. He's won the battle. And the booty, the plunder, goes to the people of God. Very much like what happened at the cross, isn't it? Jesus goes and wins the great victory, wins all this plunder and spoil over, over death and over the grave, and he gives us the booty and the plunder. Isn't that great? Reminds me very much of Isaiah 9. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but just listen. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice 
at the harvest as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Do you know the next verse? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Jesus Christ wins the great victory. He shatters the yoke across our shoulders and we get to divide the plunder and the spoils. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God for that. And so the Lord defeats the gods of Egypt and the Jews get the plunder. So beautiful, isn't it? Now that plunder comes in later, doesn't it? The articles of gold and silver. Let's speak well first. The plunder comes in later when they built the tabernacle. In Exodus 35, 21 and 22, it says, Everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all of its service and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Now where in the world would mud cake slaves get all that finery? Where would they get the jewelry if not this plundering? And so they plunder the Egyptians and then it goes right into the Ark of the Covenant. It goes right into all that was needed to build the tabernacle. That's the good story. It was also used to make the golden calf earlier. You remember that. In Exodus 32 it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into a cast idol in the shape of a calf fashing it with a tool and then they said these are your gods O Israel who brought you up out of Egypt isn't that terrible what a terrifying thing that they'd come to that point the Jews so quickly after such a short time sliding into idolatry and what enabled them to do this it was the plunder that they had taken from the Egyptians and so therefore material wealth can be used as a great blessing or a great curse it can be used very much in the Lord's service or it can be used very much as a snare and a stumbling block in an idol. And so it has been really up to this present time. The next thing we notice in this is God's sovereignty over hearts and minds. Doesn't that come across in this text? Look what it says in verse 3. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Now I might say to you that this is totally the opposite of what you would have expected. You would really think that the Egyptians would have a, a deep-seated resentment and hatred for the, the Hebrews at this point. Kind of transferring blame onto them because of them our nation is destroyed. Because of these miserable slaves, look what's left. There's nothing left in Egypt. But instead, they were favorably disposed to the point of giving their own brooches and earrings and necklaces to their neighbors. To the point where Moses himself is highly honored by Pharaoh's officials. You know, when, when the, the Jews first came into Egypt, Joseph said that uh, they are shepherds and shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. 
And so there was every reason for the Egyptians in every way to hate the Hebrews. But instead, God says, I will make them favorably disposed towards you. And it says right here in our text, the Lord made them favorably disposed toward the Israelites. The very same thing that Joseph had found. Joseph, it says, found favor in his eyes, Potiphar's eyes, and became his attendant. Uh, Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. And then in Genesis 39, 21, again, when he was in prison, the Lord was with Joseph. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So there he is getting inside of Potiphar's mind and giving Joseph a good reputation. Getting inside of the prison warden's mind and giving Joseph a good reputation. He does the same thing with Daniel. In Daniel 1.9, it says God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. You know, we labor so much for these things that the world is so interested in. Namely, possessions, gold and silver, and prestige. And these things are given by God or taken away if he sees fit. They're gifts of God and should not become the focal point of our lives. I think we should pray that we have a good reputation with our neighbors for the purpose of the gospel and for no other. So often our desire for a good reputation with our neighbors stops us from sharing the gospel, doesn't it? Aren't you afraid what they'll think? Be willing to cash it in for a good witnessing opportunity. Trade it in, it's not worth much anyway. Isn't it? I mean, the triumphal entry in, into, into Jerusalem. Hosanna, they say. A week later, crucify. This is just the way it is. Praise of man means very little. But God is able to make a human heart favorably disposed. Do you see that in the text? He has that kind of control. He's also sovereign over Pharaoh himself, as we've seen throughout these plagues. Ten plagues was the right number. Not eleven, not nine. And when the time came, Pharaoh's heart was ready to drive the Egyptians or the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember what Pharaoh had said at the beginning of the whole contest. Remember? Exodus 5.2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Well, he knows more about the Lord now. He's not saying, Who is the Lord that I should let them go? He knows now. And he is ready to let the people go. And he had made a defiant boast. I will not let the slaves go. And as the king of Israel said many, many years later, one who puts on his armor should not boast like the one who takes it off. And so Pharaoh had made a boast. I will never let them go. And then ten plagues later, he's going to let them go. This is the sovereign power of God. It says in Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. It's a good thing for us to keep in mind. And then he announces the plague to Pharaoh, the dreadful plague in verses 4 through 6. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. Now, in the past I've said that these warnings of the plagues are a form of mercy from God. I think here it's just a declaration of power. The time for mercy has ended. This plague will most certainly happen. And he's just declaring it ahead of time so that all Egypt will know that it was the Lord that did it. 
We also see here in this plague the universality of death. Death is not hindered by position or prestige, not hindered, hindered in any way. From the son of Pharaoh down to the son of the slave girl working at her mill. Pharaoh is the mightiest ruler on the face of the earth. He has chariots more than can be counted. No other nation on earth could stand up against the might of Pharaoh, but he is powerless against the angel of death. And there's nothing he can do to stop it. This is the might and the power of death. Now at this point you say, how is this just from God? Where is the justice of God? Is that in your mind? All of the firstborn, what did they do? I can understand perhaps the firstborn of Pharaoh, but even then we might say, why not Pharaoh himself? Why not? Why the son, the firstborn son? Do these questions start to rise in your minds? Do you start to wonder about the Lord's justice? Well, I don't know that I'm going to be able to satisfy any of your wonderings. But I do know this, that the Lord loves justice more than all of us put together and multiplied a billion times over. There's not a soul in this room whose love for justice holds a candle to the blazing sun of God's love for justice. God loves justice. And if anything, any thoughts we have in this way of God's justice come because we are created in his image and have a concern for justice. The beasts have no concern for justice. A lion is going to kill what a lion will kill and has no apologies and no pangs of conscience over it. But we are concerned about these matters because we are created in the image of God. How much more then would the source of all of that be filled with a love and a passion for justice? The Lord, it says, is righteous. He loves justice. Psalm 11:7 and many other psalms besides. I believe that the cross of Jesus Christ is a testimony, a clear testimony to how much God loves justice, to how passionate he is for justice. Romans 3:23 through 26 says, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace." through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. That gives me a sense of God's concern for justice. What was God concerned about? You know what he's concerned about? How do sinners like us get in a holy place like heaven? That's what he's concerned about. And so he's got to uphold his justice and get us saved somehow. The cross is his answer. The cross is a testimony to God's justice. You know, interestingly, we would have said in Romans 3, God did this to demonstrate his love, wouldn't we? And so he did. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is the cross a display of God's love? Yes, it is, the highest and best. But is it also a display of his justice? Yes, it is. And just as we could say in one sense, God loved us so much that he sent his son in our place. He would rather have his son die than lose any of his children his chosen ones. We could say that. 
So we could also say God loved his law and his righteousness and his justice so much that he'd rather have his son die than any of us get to heaven without that atonement made. And so God is passionate for justice. And like I said, I can't fully explain all of these things to your satisfaction. All I want you to do is understand how just and righteous God is. Fact of the matter is, we should come to the point that the angels have where we never do question God about anything. We would never even think to question his justice. And so in Revelation 16, as the angel is pouring out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they become blood, and millions of people will die as a result, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, while he's pouring them out, you are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. Stop there. Now that's interesting, isn't it? It is just because you did it. Do you understand that? It is just because you did it. And that's all we would say. And so the justice of God is upheld. But the question is, are we just? Are we? Are we just to God? He who created the world and everything in it, who gives us life and breath and everything that we have, do we give him his just due? Do we give him what he deserves, namely our worship, our thanks? Do we live in honor and obedience to him, or are we idolaters? And so we are the unjust ones. And therefore, I believe this tenth plague is a, a, a remarkable display, as it says in Romans 11:22, of the goodness and the severity of God. The goodness and severity of God. And here also is a key thing. In verse 7, God makes a distinction, doesn't he? He makes a distinction. Look at verse 7. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. I've been wondering if I can claim that promise from my neighborhood. I think I'm, I'm, I know I must be ripping it out of context, but there are times when I would like to claim Exodus 11:7 from my neighborhood. But it hasn't worked yet. But among the Israelites, however, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Now, why is this significant? Because what's going to happen that night? That is the night of the Exodus. How many people will be leaving? All of them. About how many is that? 600,000 men plus women and children. Several million people. And not a dog will bark. That's amazing. They're going to just slip out of Egypt. We're going to go beyond that. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, what is this distinction? They're not going to lose their firstborn that night. The Israelites' firstborn will survive the night. And you will know that I make a distinction when not one of them has someone dead in their house, and there is not a house among the Egyptians where there is not someone dead. You will see clearly the distinction that I make. Now the distinction is made, I am saying before you tonight, by grace alone. It's not because the Israelites were righteous. It's not because they were upright in heart. It's not because, frankly, they were any better than the Egyptians at all. If the roles had been reversed, they would have enslaved the Egyptians. There's no difference between them at all, as I will make plain in a moment. But the distinction that God upholds that night is the distinction made by blood, the blood of a sacrifice. 
Turn over in one chapter to Exodus 12:13. It says there in Exodus 12:13, this blood, the blood of the Passover sacrifice, will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Do you see that? What causes him to make a distinction and not kill any of the Israelite firstborn? Is it not the blood of the sacrifice? When he sees that blood having been poured out, he will pass over and will not bring the judgment down on those who deserve it richly. I'm speaking of the Israelites. It is the blood of the sacrifice alone that enables the angel of death to pass over so that he will not bring the judgment down. Look again at Exodus 12, 22 and 23. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Stop there. Is that advice that you should heed? Would it be well taken for you to stay inside your house that night? Do you think there are any rebels that said, let me try it and see? I would think not, not after the other nine plagues. God has a reputation at this point of upholding his word. And so they stayed indoors that night. What does that imply, though? It's an implied threat, isn't it? If you go out, you will die. It implies that there really is no intrinsic distinction between the Jews and the Egyptians. They all deserve to die. And not just the firstborn, all of them. Every last one. And so when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. This is to me clear indication that the firstborn of Israel also deserved to die. Many times in Jewish law, God says the firstborn are mine. He says it again and again, Exodus 13, 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Why? Well, look at verse 15 of Exodus 13. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. Isn't that clear? The firstborn of the Israelites deserved to die, and they were redeemed by the blood of a sacrifice, redeemed by a substitute that took their place, and that is the Passover lamb. And why is this the case? Because of the spiritual state of the Israelites. Now, I want you to look at two verses with me, and with them we'll be done for the evening. Look at Leviticus 17.7. There in Leviticus 17.7, it says, they, the, the Israelites, must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols to whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them and for the generations to come. What does the word no longer or the phrase no longer imply to you? Well, they were in the habit of offering to goat idols. Say, so what is a goat idol? Well, I really don't know, but I know that it seems that the Jews were in the habit of prostituting themselves to goat idols and that they should stop now in the book of Leviticus. One more place. Look at Ezekiel chapter 20. 
Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 6 through 10. On that day, it says there, I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. I promised them that I'd bring them into the promised land. Ezekiel 20, verse 6. And I said, each of you, get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So I said, I would pour my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. Do you see that? God said, okay, I'm going to wipe you out because you won't forsake your idols. They're still in Egypt now. They haven't left yet. Verse 9, but for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations they lived among and in whose sight I had revealed myself to the Israelites by bringing them out of Egypt. Verse 10, therefore I led them out of Egypt and brought them into the desert. Do you see that? This is pre-Exodus idolatry described here. And we learn significant things. The Israelites worshipped idols in Egypt before the Exodus. God warned them specifically, I think through Moses and Aaron when they first came, give up your idols. Thirdly, they refused to give them up but continued to worship them even through the times of the plagues. Therefore, I believe, fourthly, that the earlier plagues in which no distinction was made between the Israelites and Egyptians were a form of discipline for them, that they would turn away from their idols and forsake them that they deserve the plague of blood and of flies and gnats and the other things, the frogs. At some point, God starts to make a distinction, the plague on the cattle. But uh, these earlier ones were perhaps a chastisement for their idolatry. And fifth, the Lord delivered Israel from bondage and brought them out not because of any righteousness of their own, for they were idolatrous and wicked, as they will soon prove in the desert. Now, why am I making this point so strongly? We just have a hard time accepting this, don't we? We think it's always got to be because of something that God finds in us. Something he saw that he liked. Something that was attractive. And therefore, he chose us. He set his affection on us because of something to do with us. Nothing could be further from the truth. He set his affection on Israel because of his own sovereign grace and purposes. And no other reason. Because they were no better. And they would prove it, wouldn't they? Again and again and again. Throughout their history that they were an idolatrous people. You know what this makes me do? It makes me praise God for his sovereign grace in my life. Because I was no better either. No better. I'm the same. And because of his mercy to me in Christ, I stand before you totally forgiven through the blood that was shed for me on the cross. And when God sees that blood, he passes over and does not bring on me what I deserve, but instead will bring me to heaven. Praise God for his goodness and for his grace. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.